0: Hey, Esther.
1: Hey up Jane, how are you doing? I'm alright, how are you? Yes, well I'm alright and I'm so excited because we've got Lush. Aren't we lucky to have Lush on the podcast? lush of the bath bomb
0: <laughs> the sparkly bath bomb is my favorite anyway anyway introduce our guest sister.
1: today we've got mark and simon constantine from lush can you introduce yourselves fellas
2: yeah i'm mark constantine i'm the, <laughs> the the boss of lush at the moment um and in fact simon is is not working
3: for lush at the moment are you you're No, I'm Simon Constantine, and I am actually a finder of Carey's Secret Garden. That's how I'm putting it. Right, that's very nice. Mm.
2: Yeah, and so Simon did work for Lush for a long time, and obviously we're father and son.
1: And they aren't in a sort of magic factory, but the house in the Zoom picture, they do look like they're in a very nice, very nice house.
3: I think where we're sat used to have a kind of... It wasn't fully legal. Um, No, I went seven years with no planning permission. So pleased with myself. A uh, kitchen, which made, so there were big, when I was a kid, I literally, I was a toddler, uh, there were big pans of soap and moisturiser bubbling away where we're sat right now.
0: Yeah. Oh, really? So it was just like a sort of big kitchen of uh, of cosmetics.
2: Well, there were two, there, were, there was ourselves in here and then my, my colleague, Carl, who still works with us,
3: he was in the shed. In the magic shed that my <laughs> mum, that's where the bath bomb was invented. It, it was, yeah.
1: Yeah, You know, when you say that where the bath bomb was invented, you know, because it really was invented with Lush. But was it like an explosion? You thought, hold on a minute.
2: Well, No, it was very straightforward. (laughs) It was what we wanted to do. I always think people, I mean, like yourselves, you see Lush as a very exciting, vibrant business. But we're quite earnest behind the scenes. Um, So it's a little bit like a production, you know, like a TV production or a radio production, where it may come across very light, but you're working quite hard on it behind. Um, what we were talking about, there were a group of us talking about um, urinary tract infections in under seven-year-olds. Is what we were actually discussing, um, and their liking for bubble baths and the problem that the bubble bath, um, the bubble bath broke down the, the urinary tract so that it could Ooh. soak up water, um, mm. and and we wanted to have something that was as much fun for children but wasn't a bubble bath. Well, of course, needless to say, we, fell for, we sell far more bath bombs to adults than we do to children. But um, that was the original start. And, and then we uh, moated some a- a- alka-sizzlers, they were called, yeah. which were lavender-based
3: bath bombs, and they were the first ones. Yeah. And guess who, they, guess who they tested them on? Yeah. But you didn't get a urinary tract <laughs> infection. Now I've got very pleasant memories of going to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So instead of testing on animals, they tested on
0: the sun. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes, well, that is the, that is <laughs> the problem. yeah,
1: yeah. But you know what? So, how many years was that? How where was the first shop? Because I think my friend actually worked in the first shop. In Central London, would that have been? Yeah, that was that was it. And was it in Covent Garden the first? Yes. One?
2: So, well, we basically start, started down here in Paul, which is
1: yeah,
2: um, where we live, and that, and then our first little shop was was a tiny, tiny shop in Covent Garden.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: you know the bit of my fair lady where yes. she runs up the, uh, the 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 flower barrow and it's all set there. That that shop is is the spot where she Oh really? Yeah. And I've got a bit of a thing about her, so that I really loved that shop, but it was very, very tiny. It was only really room for one one person There's behind like the
3: counter and two post boxes in there. So yeah, two nice.
2: people in front really, yeah, and, yeah. and that and that really you wouldn't have recognised that as lush. And then the the first really proper shop was in King's Road, and that was the shocking. That was when suddenly we. We did everything that we're sort of better known for the fresh masks and, and the bath bombs laid out like like um, fruit and that created immense stir. We used to have about a thousand people a month asking, really? us, asking us for business. That's separate from customs.
4: What uh, year was that then?
2: Oh, well, that, that, do you know what year
3: it was? No, well, it must have been... 23 years ago, something like that.
0: So it was sort of 97, was it? 90, 95? That
3: was around then, not it? Because it Yeah, 94, 95, yeah. it was fairly soon, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, it was within a couple of years, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. I
2: mean, it, we didn't have any money, so it was quite... We had to get a backer to do the King's Road shop. Um, mm-hmm. well, we had a backer to do the, the Covent Garden shop, really, as well.
0: And then you soon started to open other branches...
2: Well, people kept asking to do business with us. We were planning originally to just be in the M25. We'd had a business collapse. We didn't really want to do much. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we really wasn't, we weren't planning to do all that stuff, but all these people kept coming and telling us they wanted to do business with us. And we kept telling them to no, you know. Mm. And and then after a while, I think we, the first guy we said yes to was Joe from Zagreb. He was nice. A lot of the time, it was just, did we like them? We'd just go in, in the King's Road. We'd just go in a cafe next door and have a chat. And and, um, and if we liked them, we did business with them. But a lot of <laughs> Americans couldn't work out why we chose Croatia first. Um, we had all sorts of interesting people. Um, Adam Faith was very, very keen. He was keen on business. In those really? Days. Yeah, he invited he invited um, myself and a, and a friend to to dinner with him. Hmm. we went to dinner with him because he was very into business you know and hmm. uh and then he started his dinner already because his friend uh his friend's birthday so we went in and he introduced us to his friend and said yeah, have you met eric before and it's eric clapton and he like, said, <laughs> well no we haven't how'd you do
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> happy birthday so, and then dustin hoffman used to come in quite a bit and then <laughs> uh, yeah paul weller Paul Weller used to like the Guildford shop. He used to hang around in there and make tea for the girls. Yeah, so we used to get a lot of that going on in those very early days because mm. there were only a few shops anyway. There was Guildford, and King's Road, and Covent Garden.
1: You know, you were really ahead of your time, weren't you, back then? And it was. Well,
2: I think the key there was that we had worked for a long time for the body shop, making all their products. And had we had the expertise when we started with them, what we did would have been them. Do you see what I mean? So what we did for us as Lush, that, that, was the, that was the progression in a way, almost like Body Shop 2, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but we'd finished working with Body Shop by then. So we did it for ourselves. But that, you know, so stripping all the packaging away, because, I mean, they did a lot to drop packaging levels,
1: yeah? Yeah, of course. But yeah. to actually
2: take it away completely, 100% recycled plastic bottles and so on. Yeah. That, that was very much... Um, our style what happens with product innovation is it's a very slow process it 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 creeps along at a steady pace and it's only if we don't show you something for a bit and then suddenly show it to you that it that it suddenly becomes oh look at that you know we had quite a lot of those things for a long time shampoo bars and similar things shampoo bars i mean well shampoo bars is the classic example is not it When were they invented? Can you say 87? I thought it was 86, 87. By the time they became successful, the patent had run out. (laughs)
3: 25 years later. 25 years
2: later, suddenly everyone's like, these are a good idea. Oh, good. I'm glad you like them because, uh, you know, they've (laughs) they've run out of eh? patent (laughs) now. Not that it makes any difference for us. You know, it's nice when people get going. What I was going to explain to you when I was talking about these progressive ideas. Um, if you take our skincare, we've been working on skincare for, well, always, right? From the very beginning. So this is 40 years, because we we were making products before. Um, and Helen Ambrosen is someone that Simon and I have worked with for a long time. She's been sort of slowly tightening things up. And then what's really lovely from the beekeeping point of view is that we've we've used biomimicry. Now I can remember when you taught me that term at least you can remember something yeah <laughs> uh, so what we did you see people want product that lasts they want face creams that last um, but but the problem is to make them that last you have to put preservatives in you have to put the safest preservatives you can find now in our case we believe the, the safest preservatives we can find are proper um, methyl paraben yeah now they're not always popular but that's because preservatives aren't very nice. You don't really want them. You don't want them in the system. You don't want them in the water. You don't want them anywhere, if you can avoid it, because they're poisons. They're there to stop microorganisms growing in the product so that you just put this poison in. And then when you put it on your skin, that obviously controls, you've got a natural microflora, not exactly bees crawling all over you, but you've got a natural microflora, right? Which when you put the preservative on, it damages So how do you get a preserved product that doesn't do that? And then you come to bees. You think of the bees when they're gathering the nectar. The nectar won't last the winter. Yeah. So they have Mm -hmm. to drive the water off. Mm -hmm. They drive the water off and get the water level to a point that the the honey will last the winter. Mm -hmm. And then nip out in the spring (laughs) or late winter and get the water to bring it back to dilute the Honey to be able to drink it because they can't drink the honey. Mm-hmm. Um, we did the same thing with the moisturizers. That's what we've been doing all that time. So we've got, we've been copying honey mm-hmm.
4: by getting the water
2: levels to the right level that we can have self preserving products, products we make that don't go off but don't need preservative. amazing. But that, yeah, but that, you know, it, it's very quick to describe, but that is Helen Ambrose's lifetime work. Yeah. Yeah. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. You have to make a lot of stuff, do a lot of tests, have a lot of stuff go wrong, yeah, do it again, and that goes on and on and on. And so that, you know, those sort of things, they're much more behind the scenes and secret and not understood. Did she actually
1: follow what the bees were doing to try and think of that? That was much more Simon
2: and I probably from our angle. I mean, I've always, I've I've kept, I haven't always been a Viki right? Mustn't say that because I no, you shouldn't say should we describe our beekeeping experiences too Ooh,
0: yes mm-hmm. definitely
2: uh so I started I I was quite an excitable young man and I did I tried <laughs> yoga and things like that right they didn't do much for me so really? I decided that the way that I was going to calm myself down was I was going to keep bees because if I moved too quickly or behaved in an excited manner I'd get stung right and I apprenticed myself to a, a a lovely guy called Dave, who was ex-Navy, and he had about 100 hives, and I would go out every Sunday with him and learn the craft, you know, uh, which was good fun. I mean, it was very, very nice to do. I do remember
3: Dave, the beekeeper, coming round. Yeah. And taking you off places and stuff. And playing his... he. Well, because he, he was ex-Navy, he used to reminisce. So he used to bring tapes of people getting piped aboard and then play them to me. I was about eight. He used to play I- them to me. Yeah, like it was a very old fashioned way of learning because he he'd been a boy seaman. One
2: time, for example, he was it was Sunday morning, right? We had quite a lot of hives to go through. He was older, I was younger. So he would pass me, and it were they were under trees, he'd pass me the comb to have a look to see what the the egg laying pattern was like, and I would make a comment. And then he would pass it to me if they're incipient queen cups, and I would say whether I could see an egg in it. Well, one time he was in a hurry. For, it was obviously getting close to his lunchtime. Um, and he passed me the, the frame. And there was uh, an incipient cup there with an egg in it, right? So I said, there's an egg in there. So he, he, he took it off me brusquely and he looked in there and he said, that's just a bit of wax. And he quickly squashed it. So then a minute later, he's passing, it, passing me a comb to look at the, the pattern of egg laying. And I said, well, there's no eggs in there. So he said, what do you mean there's no eggs in there? I said, well, there's just lots of bits of wax. Anyway, he didn't say anything, right? Didn't say anything. Put it all back. And we, we put the hide back together. We're walking away, and I've got a bee in my hat. And uh, I don't know with you too how you you work with a bee in your hat, but I told him in the hope that he would just kill it because he was going to sting me and I didn't like it. And uh, so I said, I've got a bee in my hat, Dave. I've got a bee in my hat. And so he looked and he said, it's all right. It's only a drone. Now your listeners will hopefully know that drones don't sting you. So I relaxed and then it stung me. (laughs) And that was very typical of the lessons I would get from Dave on a a regular Sunday morning. Um, And and I would get quite badly stung occasionally as well. Uh, But he taught me lots of, he taught me all that sort of basic stuff that you look after the apprentice. If you have an apprentice with you, you take the stings, not him, and so on. So he was quite... Quite traditional in the way he worked that we worked the bees, and then I got a I got my own bee shed down the bottom of the garden here, Oh. Uh, where I I kept. Well, I I had a little semi-detached house uh, nearby where I used to keep bees, but you all know it's not good news to let people know you're keeping bees in the garden. No. So I had a little bee shed, and this bee shed was great. Um, and uh, but then I had to move. This is not a good story.
1: <laughs> <laughs> God, are you sure okay. you want to tell it?
2: <laughs> yes. Well, it, it's not in my favour because, well, it, it, sort of. It, there's an echo shortly with my beekeeping with Simon, which we've been doing. So, I'll just tell this story anyway. So, basically, um, had this bee shed in a semi-detached house, sold the house, I had to move the bees. Um, and as you know, they orientate themselves to a, a place in space, don't they? Yeah, and so I had to get the get the sheet. So I had my friend Jeffrey, who was my apprentice. I don't drive, right? I had his car there ready to take the bees, three hives to take out. Um, put the sheet in front of the first hive. uh he and I oh i I'd, I'd been drinking. <laughs>
0: okay, uh... <laughs> it,
2: it was a stormy night. Oh, God. I didn't put all the equipment oh, on. Oh, God. But I had my friend Jeffrey with me, and uh, I thought it was going to be fairly straightforward. I thought we eased just ease the, out the, the hive, pop it in front, all would be well. Yeah. The lady of the house that had bought the house was now stood in the little conservatory watching all this going on. She couldn't really see much because the shed was on the back of the house. Anyway, uh, pulled it away from the hall. They boiled out. They went bonkers. Jeffrey was all right. But of course, then I'm holding the hive and I'm saying to him, run, run. You know, and they are absolutely going bonkers. They're really cross. Managed to stagger out holding this hive past the lady who's looking from inside the thing. Put it on the the thing. And then I'm chased up the path by them, picking up, I don't know, 50 slits of things, I suppose. It was just an absolute mess Mm. so then I left the hive I got the hive the the one I'd moved in front where I had to be to still collect the bees as they came back told the lady not to go in a garden Uh, the next day I went to see Dave Uh, Dave I've made this awful mess had an apprentice I pulled the hive I I didn't have my proper boots on um I'd had a drink or two Uh, they were all clustering you know they cluster around your mouth where I'd been Mm. drinking red wine they were all clustered around there, yeah. having a little go, yeah. Well, having yeah. a look, and a, but that that oh, smells sweet. Yeah. What's that? Anyway, I said to him, can you come and help me? So he says, yes, tomorrow, if both of you are there, in your gear, with your, your hats on, smoker ready, boots on, uh, wait for me, they'll be there at 5 o'clock. He arrived at 5 o'clock. The lady was back in the little spot again, yeah, to see the fun, because she'd seen it yesterday, and it was good fun uh and then uh she was waiting there jeffrey and i my friend we were stood like two you know flower graders in white you know with the hat the whole thing he came in no gear on no boots no gloves nothing just a a blue anorak and then he said to the lady of the house can i have a bowl of water please and so she gave him a bowl of water and he just flicked the front they all went in he said there they think it's raining put the stuff in the front take it away
0: How amazing! Did you know that S, that you could do that, make them think it's raining?
1: Well, I mean, I have tried that, but obviously that was a lucky one for him, wasn't it? Well,
2: I hope it was lucky. I mean, I like like to think it was just lucky because I felt a right twit. (laughs) 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 So a lot of that, when you're asking, so with the formulation, for example, Mm -hmm. obviously, you know, learning from Dave and learning all of the B stuff myself, I understood fully those aspects of, of honey and the mm-hmm. way it was naturally preserved. And that helped because I work alongside Helen. So Helen did the bulk of the work, but I provided the, you know, the beekeeping
4: uh, mm-hmm.
2: impetus, really. You're going to nice. No, you go on, go on.
1: I was just, I was
0: just gonna, you know, because it's all um, free from animal animal testing, isn't it? Your your products, yeah. um, but how easy is that to do? Is it? Um, I mean, because there's just so many other products on the market that are uh, that do use animal testing. Is it kind of quite a? Is it a big sort of ball ache to do it the other way around?
2: I mean, the truth is, imagine if if the, the four of us were discussing making a nice range of honey face creams yeah and i and you said now how will you test them for safety and i said well i'm going to use mice and guinea pigs you'd automatically say have you got anything better than that mark because that doesn't mm-hmm. sound very thorough does it do you see what I mean you know that that was always my problem that i didn't feel that 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 created safety well mm-hmm. there's a moral position about not wanting to uh to do things to animals for cosmetic sake but from my point of view i didn't see it was giving safety to people anyway but we're back now we're back now fighting animal testing in europe so when you think that most people would hope that they never have to think about that again
3: we're back to to major fights where we're having to really go for. the difficult part is it was the focus is always on the cosmetic wasn't it so it was the the finished product being tested on a on an animal was the big focus is like is that necessary is there more modern tests can't science catch up that sort of stuff Mm, and mm. that's where the battles are won and then they moved it felt like the, the goalposts got moved back a step which is okay cosmetic stuff's over here here's all the raw materials that go into your cosmetics now they need to be tested Um, And it doesn't I don't know, you know, I'm not a scientist, but in terms of the the information that's available, you think surely there are more modern and kind of humane versions of that, which is where Lush puts a lot of its time and energy now. We
2: ran a a Lush Prize. Do you remember the first one? Uh, I actually can't.
3: It's over 10 years ago. isn't it? Um, So
2: it's 10 years this year. There you go. 10 years this year. Uh, So we what we decided was it wasn't enough to just not test ourselves. We should make an effort so we we started a lush prize where we give prizes to scientists for developing non-animal tests for cosmetics and, and other things
1: mm. um, and we give That's 200
2: 250,000 a year in in prize money so it's a big prize um and that and that has been really successful they've just done the judging last week i think for this okay. year so uh, that's very exciting and, and and suddenly become pertinent again, you know, and, we, and we've got various uh, scientists that we work with where they've really developed lovely tests, you know, really, really sophisticated tests that tell you a lot of stuff. Because the main, it's mainly interesting if something causes cancer or, you know, you know, the two main killers are heart disease and cancer. So they're, they're things you want to know about, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, and and those those sort of materials now are much easier to test than they were. You know that might might cause you some danger. Colors, mm. hair colors, things like that. I was just happy because
3: mm. uh, you don't have to test on on you anymore. Yeah, which Ooh. I did
2: test a lot on you, especially sunscreens. Do you remember all that? A lot. Yeah, a, yeah, a lot of rubbing <laughs> things on him. Yeah,
0: but if you if you're using natural products, then you wouldn't think that there would have been.
2: Um- they have a long history of use. So honey, for example, long history of use. But still, you know, natural things can be dangerous in in the same way as anything else, as we know. You know, I mean, I was thinking of monkshood or down by where we're keeping bees now. We've got quite a lot of um, foxgloves and things like that. Yeah, Yeah. so you wouldn't, Mm. you know, those things are a concern, aren't they? So, no, I think you should always be alert and aware. And there are some really safe synthetics out there that are okay. But the, the nice thing about nature when you're using, well, if we just talk about honey, you think how long people have been applying honey to their skin. Mm-hmm. You know, we really pretty much know what goes wrong if you, with that. Yeah? Which is not a lot. Mm, yeah. Sticky. Sticky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hard to wash off. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually, we, I have found I've got a great shampoo, which is predominantly honey. So that is a surprise, really, that that makes the hair so beautiful. I suppose not a surprise, but, you know, you would think you it would leave the hair sticky, but it doesn't.
0: And um, and how do you do that sort of conscientiously, taking honey from bees for, uh, uh, yeah, for pro- is... uh, cosmetic products?
2: Well, this is the interesting thing. We're, we're pretty much down now in Lush. We, we, we are a vegetarian company, not vegan, right? But we've always served vegans and we've always done a lot of vegan product. And you've experienced quite a lot of going and seeing them harvest honey.
3: Well yeah one of uh, one of the roles that I've had I had at Lush um was head of ethical buying so we had you know had a lot of these kind of conversations around ingredients and the ethics eggs went on for a long long time we, as well we, we cut them out now because yes. we used a lot of eggs at one point mm, I know
0: I I read about that on on uh, your website I was amazed that eggs were used
3: yeah and so well, we, think of egg and lemon shampoo
1: eggs are very <laughs> full of goodness oh aren't they yeah mm.
3: protein and, but but the the ethics of producing it just um you know gradually it just became non-viable didn't it really it mm. disgusting but i think bees are kind of i don't know i i mean like for me personally i would kind of i wouldn't say draw a line in the sand because you can't be that firm on it but there's definitely a place for beekeeping in the modern world i think i yeah. think that for me they're you know they're they're great indicators of the health of your ecosystem um because they have to forage indiscriminately across all of the different you know whether you know where you're you're harvesting from um and there's great projects out there ethical projects that you can um work with so a lot of the a lot of the honey we're describing there in that shampoo for instance comes um from Zambia or from other fair trade community projects elsewhere so sometimes they're kind of one of the only viable lines of income for communities you know who are who don't have a lot of opportunity to do other things so for me you know i got I, like i said we've got to travel around a lot and see a lot of these different things and you think actually bees can provide a real lifeline where there's very little uh, else to gain income from um mm-hmm. and then like you said there's that debate you know about what do you do do you put it into a product or do you eat it um bear in mind that your skin is quite a big organ i think people forget that that you're still when you're feeding your skin you've got to watch out what you're putting on that as well mm-hmm. um so I think that makes a big difference as well.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it, how, um, you know, the best, you know, like you're talking about Zambia and, you know, a lot of the best uh, beauty products have got, like, wax from places like that because they're less polluted. The wax hasn't got pollution or, you know, in, like, I don't know how good my wax would be in Crouch End. It'd be lovely. To make a face.
3: I don't know something. how much pollution is actually held within the wax. Hardly any, I think. It I depends. I, I'm interested in that. Yeah, because it's like, what? Ooh. where do they forage, you know, for resins and for waxes? Where do they forage for it? Where do they get mm-hmm. it from?
2: When I first was working with Anita Roddick in the body shop, I made a product called Honey Bees and Almond Oil Cleanser. And at first, because she only had one shop, I could do it all from my own bees. Right. Mm. And uh, But I used to just take the cappings off. So basically, I, I had the honey for myself. But I took that the honeyed cappings off, and I made the product from the honeyed cappings with almond mm-hmm. oil, and um, so the, the beeswax was really not very clearly, you know, it was part beeswax and part propolis and part dirty feet.
0: You should wear boots. <laughs> That's on it. <laughs> yeah.
2: She
3: never minded, Anita never minded, and that went on for several years. That's <laughs> like, uh, do you remember Pete saying about? He dropped a whole. So one of our colleagues and friends, he kept, he keeps bees. And he dropped a hole. He, he was asked to somebody's house who had bees in the chimney, and he went up into the chimney and he displaced them very successfully. But he didn't catch them at the bottom, and the entire the entire hive spilled out into this person's lounge, and they had tiny little sooty footprints, and their footprints just just across the entire magnolia walls and cream <laughs> carpet. Left. I, I had a, a an interesting story
2: recently um where so basically simon has left lush now and he's he's set up carrie's secret garden
1: yeah, um, see that. And, okay. yeah
2: which is really lovely And there um i was there not this spring but the spring before and this female um honey buzzard arrived and sat on the tree looking at the roof
3: where you'd taken out the because you took out a load of bees from the roof. We did have to take some <clears> from the roof the roof of the so the Carey Secret Garden. And then there's a there's Carey House. And in the roof of the house, there was quite a well kind of seasoned colony that had gradually done that thing where it moves from one roof frame to the next roof frame. So it filled up frame upon frame of the roof with um yeah, with bees, which was really interesting to look in. Uh it wasn't only a small colony in there, but they'd really spread across the half of the roof. Yeah. And so and you'd taken that out, right? Yep. So
2: then the, the honey buzzard, I thought, what's it doing sitting up there as a female? It just kept looking and looking and looking. Mm. It was very early in
3: the season. Grumpy, was it?
2: Well, I, I was thinking, I started to realise, oh, it's looking to where the bees were, but they're not there.
3: Yeah.
2: And and so I developed this quite nice theory that this honey buzzard sat up there for 10 minutes looking for our bees. And then someone, but it was right over the pond. And then someone told me, no, nah, that's not true. In the spring, they eat frogs.
4: So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So you've got an idea for a business,
1: the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling it's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want so when you're ready to bring your idea to life power it up with shopify
4: sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com and can you
0: can you tell us um a bit about your charity work
2: yeah it's, it's very kind of you to ask that uh, we do we have managed to give nearly 60 million pounds
0: that's amazing you know,
2: yeah i know and i think that as well i think yeah you think, incredible you know where uh, where i only had to i only had three hives and i could do the whole of the body shop with the three hives for one of the products <laughs> uh yeah we've done that's well amazing. with that and it's basically gone to um groups you know so fracking yeah mm. so frack mm. off for example. Mm. um and and you know the the nanas, i don't know if you know anything about the nanas, do you against fracking. Oh. oh they're wonderful the nanas. They're, yeah, yeah they're from lancashire somewhere like that oh and right they,
0: yes i have actually yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah the
2: fracking the anti-fracking nanas, and they go do all these things and they knit the whole time I've got a, a blanket they knitted for my wife and I. So look disapproving. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. so that's right. They oh, give yeah. you a hard look. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they just, yeah. So all those sort of groups. And they don't want a lot of money. I mean, mm. most of the time, well, five grand's about the most that anyone wants, perhaps 10. But mm. in their case, it's just enough money for wool, I think. But, <laughs> you know, that that sort of supporting those groups, on mm. Sabs. Those sort of groups that year upon year give their time, in their effort to try to, often just to keep up the law. In the case of hunt sabs, they're trying to stop people fox hunting when it's against the law. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's been a real privilege and a pleasure to do that, and an amazing thing. We
3: do a lovely spring prize. Mm-hmm. Um, you came up with that, didn't you? Yeah, there kind of there was the the anti animal testing fighting animal testing, which became the Lush Prize. And then we kind of did a a mirror of that, which was kind of the spring prize, which was really focused on, I got really into permaculture and kind of regenerative agriculture and that side of things. So this this whole world of regeneration, which are community groups that are hoping to kind of put back ecosystems and support one another and come up with these wonderful products and, and different things that we can potentially even source. Sometimes we source ingredients from. Uh, and that, yeah, that that's become this lovely network of prize winners and participants, which is called the the Spring Prize. Yeah. Oh,
0: and that's brilliant. People do like incentives, don't they? They do well, like prizes. It gives it gives them yeah a, the edu- a reason
2: to do something. It's the education you get with it because what happens to me? Simon comes and says, "Right, Dad, I think we should re-green the desert." I love it. Yeah, well, well, yeah, it sounds great, doesn't it? You know, it sounds great, but actually trying to do something like that is another thing, isn't it? And, and, and regeneration, I mean, the, the, the difference between uh, just replacing what you had and actually improving. We've got this new slogan. is not new. We've had it for a while, but it's leaving the world lusher than we found it. Mm-hmm. So constantly looking if you can leave something better than it was before. Yeah, wherever absolutely. you are whatever you're doing yeah. can you can you actually leave it
3: better because all the other rules and all the other things don't somehow do that mm. yeah well like we see there's all this backpedaling all the time on stuff he was constantly worrying about kind of where the regulations you put in or when you have you truly beaten animal testing and you know there's kind of constant wash of i feel i think it feels a bit like it at the moment mm. it so does yeah. maybe going backwards on things that you thought were kind of solid and and kind of there as your foundation to build things better i think Mm -hmm. for me like with with regeneration and this sort of feeling of it's just fitting in with what life does Mm -hmm. but in a positive Mm -hmm. way is kind of actually what's more life giving it's why carrie's secret garden has been a lovely kind of almost like a lockdown project two years of restoring a a walled garden because you're able to just add gently add in bits that suddenly you do see your honeybees across all the lavender and the salvias and the apple trees And, and you can see that bit by bit you can actually improve and make things much nicer and then other people join you in that and you're like wow this is yeah you know this is gradually and bit by bit is getting better and better
1: you know your marketing and you know it's so you know it just gives such a good message I think you know about sustainability and um you know and the use of all these wonderful natural products and you know I know my children really were interested in that you know and um and what you're saying about this this garden and and um you know just it's the story of the product that I think is so important, how you can, you know, you can educate people as you go along. And I think you really do that, don't you, in your work? And I know that you've got this garden on top of Lush, um Lush Castle, but <laughs> it is. I don't know, imagine it's the Lush building, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, it'd be so nice. I mean, I know you've got the roof there, but just thinking about all this, you know, re-greening buildings and how in some countries they've got so many balconies with, you know, with trees growing all up these buildings. I was just imagining, are you going to be pushing more of that with Lush on your rooftops? Um, yeah,
3: at the gardens we've got about seven hives that are nestled in the woods, actually. Yeah. Um, that's where we're doing our beekeeping. The ones the, the roof of Kerry, the roof of Lush Castle, is so higgledy-piggledy <laughs> <laughs> and so complicated it you had, could never get it wasn't just bees they had six different species of bat yes it's Ooh. been a huge palaver. <laughs> said the guy who put the planning application in not that you want to know all that but he said it was the most complicated thing he'd ever had to do <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, one of the ideas we got which have nothing to do with bees is uh is um reintroducing dalmatian pelicans into the thames estuary uh, wow. so how can you make the world lusher than you found it fairly mm-hmm. simply so that kind of thing is very much where i personally want to go in pool we we've already been part of reintroducing ospreys here reintroducing seagulls things of that nature so mm-hmm. that that where you could really make a difference really improve uh the quality of people's life i mean it's part of the beekeeping thing part mm-hmm. of the reason it's lovely to do this this is People who want to do this are doing their own small effort, aren't they? You know, mm-hmm. they're in their garden with their bees. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that that to my mind, that's that's what it's all about.
4: Mm-hmm. Every
2: individual making that contribution
3: in their own way. I would say, mm-hmm. I think for me, because telling the story is one thing, but then uh, with, say, with Carrie's Secret Garden, they actually, to be able to come and create spaces where you can actually see it done
4: mm-hmm.
3: uh, and connect truly and actually, you know, whether it's beekeeping, whether it's fruit grown or whatever it might be, is actually having something kind of tactile and tangible and being a part of is also, um, I think, really exciting. So mm-hmm. I found like that having, yeah, having people come to, because we're not far, we're just, we're down in Dorset. So we're not so far that people can't come down. And when mm-hmm. they visit, it's a, the space itself, it does change. You know, when you talk about mental health and all that, you're not talking about kind of something that is ethereal. You walk through the gates and you're like, oh, actually, the tempo, everything changes. It's a it's a walled garden. So it's perfect. You know, it's got a microclimate and it affects you as, a, as the individual in there.
2: But In my yeah. opinion, beekeeping is much the same, even yeah. if you're doing it in your own garden, you know, I don't know that we can, when you get stung, it's not so good, is it? No. But, but otherwise, <laughs> I otherwise, I do think that it's a very philosophical pursuit and very connected with all of these messages.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Like, Lush, your business is, who would have thought that you were going to have an empire of, of lush, you know, it really is an incredible. We don't
2: look like the sort of people that might, do we yeah, really? If you, yeah, if you well, so. think, you do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's amazing how you know we sometimes think things aren't changing, but there is change. And
2: yes, yeah,
1: people that have been coming to your shops for so long, they're the people who you know you've been teaching them something along this, mm. or well, they've also been really teaching
3: us it's a very reciprocal thing I had that conversation at the weekend we were talking about um we did a lot of work on palm oil for a long time yes yeah Yeah. completely different subject but you know and I think the same when you look at shampoo bars or you look at any of these sort of topics that at first people are like I have no idea what you're talking about Mm -hmm. and to watch over a decade or 15 years or 25 years um I was talking I was talking to an orangutan organization and now you I, thought he was there,
1: I was talking to an orangutan. I could,
3: <laughs> it could have been, I could have been doing that too. That's completely possible. I'm a fan right. of that. Yeah, that kind of, but yeah, I mean, it was just that now you don't have, if you say to someone about palm oil like we've just done now, you're mm. nodding agreement, no, you mm. know, we all know what that's about. And five, 10 years ago, we were still having to kind of talk a lot about these different mm. issues. And then it's so you're, you're
0: using less palm oil, aren't you, in
3: your yeah, products now? Yeah. 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 And it's a nuanced thing because palm is. It's the same thing. Palmers itself, and it's the same with honey. You know, they're they're great ingredients. It's how you produce them, what you do, the ethics of it, and all of this other stuff. And so, for a long time, it was just way out of our league to do anything other than boycott it. Really, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, um, mm, and not mm. use it and
3: remove it from stuff because we didn't have an option of doing it properly. If you if you look
2: at soap, when I first started um, being interested in making soap, soap was made from animal tallow. Mm. Yeah. So all the old and you never knew if you went to a soap maker, because what happens most soap guys like myself, we buy our soap made from a big generalist guy. In our case, a farmer in Yorkshire uh, makes the, the base material and then we turn that into various soaps. And so you would go to him and you'd say, I don't want any animal tallow." Well, we never know when we're going to switch it on and off. You know, we just do it by price. If the vegetable oil is cheaper, we do that well, I would like you to just use vegetable oil, please. And then eventually you get that going. And then slowly. But then, of course, the vegetable oil is palm oil. So then you've got to go back and say, look, look excuse
3: me. And they roll <laughs> their eyes a bit. <laughs> uh, what do you use a, as
0: an alternative then?
3: The mixture of, uh, I'm not sure where, sometimes it was coconut, rapeseed and sunflower. For My favourite is the rapeseed. And then it was a mixture of rapeseed and sunflower for a while, I think. Did you? Were you mm-hmm. part of the thing in Japan? What the Fukushima?
2: Yeah, yeah. oh, that out. is such a lovely project. So, describe that with a
3: so. Uh, it was pro- yeah, so it's probably about five years ago. I went out and we've been supporting um organic farmers who, in the aftermath of Fukushima and the nuclear disaster, had basically they were the farmers who decided to stay on. So it used to be a really big organic farming kind of community, and they did a lot of different from rice, potatoes, a lot you know all sorts of different kind of agricultural produce, and then the disaster happened and that polluted all the topsoil. So you basically, they didn't know what to do. And they actually referenced um, Chernobyl and they went, there was a a kind of farming group in Chernobyl that said, oh, there's a few plants you can plant, sunflowers being one and rapeseed, canola being another, and they don't accumulate cesium into the the seed. So basically the cesium, which is what's on the soil, which is radioactive, Mm. it goes into the plant, but it doesn't transfer into oil. So you can collect the seed, press it for oil, and the oil's clean. So basically, they started. It's almost like a long-term, let's like say, remediation. It's a long-term cleanup operation, which is to grow rapeseed, and we made a soap called Drop of Hope soap um, using rapeseed oil that we then made into this this soap. And then we got to visit, and you when you when you visited, you realised, you know, just how. Something like that is very different. It's not like an oil spill where you can see it and it's dirt everywhere. And there's, and it, you know, it was the, the landscape was pristine, but mm. they then had gone along, you know, lovely rolling hills and, and forests. And, and then they'd had to remove all the topsoil from these different farms. They put them into big ton bags that you see these sort of big hippo type bags and put them into a car park. And, and that would then sit there for 35 years until they worked out how to clean that soil because it was so. Um, contaminated.
0: Mm-hmm. You took
3: the wrong. If you took the wrong turning down mm-hmm. a down a road, uh, they would have a temporary barrier up because it wasn't every day that the radiation was in the same place. So what they had, it looked like dustbins in every car park, but they weren't. They were Geiger counters. Basically, they would tell you the background radiation levels, and if they had reached a certain level, you'd leave the you'd leave that area and you'd have to come back when it was safe. So it was yeah. a really That's surreal experience to be there um but to see that kind of you know how people were trying to adapt to this situation uh I know it's not not much to do with bees but there is definitely it is <laughs> well, yeah it was they still, bees to p- pollinate well, the uh it was what we're doing to these landscapes whether it's spraying it with poisons or whether it's um allowing radiation to leak all over it and then how you get over that and how yeah. you kind of live with it and some of those guys were incredibly brave you know they, yeah. they knew that, that it wouldn't you know they weren't going to last a long long time doing it no mm. right
1: how did you um, decide I know you know you're not on social media and yeah you
2: know how I... did we decide not oh. to do that
1: yeah um,
2: the same well, way I decided <laughs> it's well it's just it's just simply that, that you forgot your login didn't you yeah <laughs> <laughs> no I mean I was as addicted as everyone else to social media there was no two ways about it we tried to get off once we we went back on and it's so easy to believe any of your ills are to do with not being you know like no sales or something uh, because you're not on social media but the truth is uh with some of them where they were really they had research showing that young women thought of committing suicide when they'd been on I think it was 14% of British women 8% of American women and that was their own research, which they hid, and then a whistleblower brought out and We attract young women that's our our stopping mm-hmm. trade. If we're on mm-hmm. those social media channels, we're attracting them, and that is not appropriate it's just not appropriate it's not if you know once you know those figures, you think, well, you know you wouldn't do you wouldn't take people to a difficult spot to sell them. A- <laughs> a bath bomb do you know what i mean like no, you know no. the, the, that's not right so we've just come off and we've managed to really come off this time last time it was a bit patchy and and uh but it took me a long time to realize how you know uh karen organized this this meeting and, and myself argued and then i realized so karen you're addicted to social media and then you know then you think well so am i and uh, you know all the likes and the dopamine hits and all the rest of it so Anyway, I, I just stick to uh, putting bird songs on Twitter now.
4: And,
0: and and finally, can you just tell us what your next big project is, if you have one? I'm sure you have.
2: Well, we always have projects within Lush. So, I mean, we're opening a lovely big store in Glasgow next, a really, really big one. And, we're, and what we're doing is we're looking for, for lovely, uh, for great communities, yeah? Yeah. Where, where we can open a larger store. So I, I rather think he will be Belfast after that. But the other thing I'm really keen on doing is bringing back the House Sparrow to uh, central London, uh, the Cockney Sparrow project. So I'm chatting to people about that.
0: Oh, what a lovely thing. That's gorgeous. Oh, wow. Well, thank you so much for coming on and being our guest today. And uh, I I can't wait to go and get my bath bombs and 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 shower everybody with with christmas bath bombs this year which they are such a hit at christmas well all year round but particularly at christmas
1: time. me too i just can't imagine christmas without bath bombs <laughs>
0: <laughs> thanks thank so you. much for sharing all your wonderful information you've been
2: a joy <laughs> thank you thank, thank you much. so
1: much thank you
2: pleasure real pleasure
1: Queen Bees is written and created by Esther Coles and Jane Horrocks. It is produced by Claire Broughton and Andy Goddard and partly recorded at The Hives on my allotment near Crouch End in London. Our title music is Sweet Nothing by Amy Mae Ellis and Will Cookson. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Queen Bees Pod for pictures and videos from The Hive. Queen Bees is a hat-trick podcast.